Welcome to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. I'm Mona, and I was married for 30 years in that relationship for 32, and we didn't find out we were a neurodiverse couple until our 29th year of marriage. I've been divorced since 2018, and we have a wonderful 25-year-old daughter who's doing great and thriving. And today, I have another AANE trained and certified therapist, Catherine Funter. And welcome, Catherine, to the Neurodiverse Love Podcast. Hey, Mona. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you. And I know, um, Catherine, you have worked with a lot of different groups and populations. So I'd love if you would share a little bit with our listeners about some of the work you've done and the folks that you've worked with. And then also, what made you decide to go and uh, get certified through AANE for working with neurodiverse couples? Excellent. Yeah. So the, uh, I'm a trained, uh, I'm a licensed marriage and uh, family therapist out of three different states, Hawaii, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire. I'm also a certified substance abuse counselor out of Hawaii. And I've been in mental health for going on 17 years now, uh, working with individuals, families, uh, couples, and group formats. Uh, in my private practice now, which is where I do most of my work, I really only focus on individual work and couples work. Uh, and that is mostly due to the uh, types of advanced clinical training I have uh, that is focused on those two particular formats. Wonderful. Wonderful. And I know um, you have specialties in EFT, emotional focus therapy, and the Gottman method and the developmental method. Uh, correct. So uh, those are the three for couples work that I have. That's wonderful. And I also know that you had shared with me that you've worked with um, children who are autistic from 18 months to 13 years old. So do you mind sharing a little bit about um, the work you did with that population? Yes. Yeah, so when I lived in Hawaii, I was able to work as what they would call a field trainer. So it's behavioral therapy, working one-to-one, a direct support with children um, who've been diagnosed with autism. And, and now they would be diagnosed most likely with level three because the uh, you know, level of support that they required, the impairment in skills uh, that were present, the symptoms uh, and the severity of skills would meet the level three diagnosis for autism and working on a variety of skills like academic, behavioral intervention, social skills, language skills, uh, physical therapy type skills uh, in different settings such as school, community and within the family and home environment. That's wonderful. So you have so much varying experience and in multiple states. And that's awesome. I love that um, we have had so many amazing therapists and counselors and coaches on the podcast. And everybody has a little bit of a different framework from which they work with neurodiverse couples. So I'd love if you would talk about what might occur when a couple comes in to your office or sees you on Zoom, um, how you start the conversation and maybe the assessment process to maybe rule out some other issues or find out that they are a neurodiverse couple? What are some of the things that you look for and some of the things you talk to them about? For couples therapy, uh, folks will have completed a pretty extensive assessment. 
And they'll have done that before I've met with them for their first session. And part of that is because it limits how much individual work I need to do to get to know each partner. It also gives a, a good amount of data of what is happening relationally within the relationship and what is happening individually with each person. And there can definitely be some cues, especially if uh, there is more wiring on a neurodiverse level uh, in that just the assessment alone and how people respond. So uh, the interpretation of a question, right? Who did you grow up with and what was it like? The differences that I see between somebody who uh, has neurodiverse symptoms versus a person who may be more neurotypical, uh, there can be a difference there. Uh, are they answering the, the question concrete and literally, or are they giving a lot more, uh, you know, gray to that, to that response? Uh, there are also some individual questions in terms of disposition and how they experience emotion that may put that on my radar before I've sat down with them. So for couples work, I've already gotten a good amount of data that uh, if there is a hypothesis for mm -hmm. diversity within the relationship, that would be one of my first indicators. Sometimes as well, backing up beyond that is the screening. So if somebody calls or there's a meet and greet and I talk to folks to see if we're going to be a good fit, see what they're looking for from the couples therapy process. Uh, sometimes one partner, especially the neurotypical partner, may bring up concerns about neurodiversity. Uh, occasionally people will, you know, send me private messages and say, hey, I think that this is going on with my partner and they never want to hear that. Uh, so that, of course, creates different challenges in bringing right. them to the room. Uh, but there is typically an indication uh, within those first couple of engagements with a couple. Uh, and then when I do meet with them, if I'm starting to see things that support that hypothesis, uh, I will speak initially individually with that person to see what their thoughts are. Um, sometimes there's pushback. Other times uh, they'll say, yeah, I've, I've heard that and that that makes sense. I don't know if I'm you know, really buy into it. And then other people buy into it 100%. Um, so there can be different experiences around that. Um, so. Yeah, I think that's so wonderful that you're able to have the couples do such an in-depth kind of um, review of a variety of things that are going to help you be really effective in your counseling with them. And I know not everybody does that. And I know you're part of the Couples Therapy Institute. And we've had a few other therapists on the podcast who've talked a little bit about that, but I think it's really wonderful. And I, I think for folks that are neurodiverse, um, you know, that may be a little scary for one or both of the partners, but I would imagine that without that, it would be very, very difficult to kind of delve in deeper in the beginning into the issues that are causing the most challenges. Right, it's really organizing. So even yeah. though it is a ton of work on the front end for couples, it helps them organize and understand how they've been experiencing the relationship and how they've been growing up, their experiences growing up. There's you know questions around attachment and how they saw their parental figures or caretaker figures. Uh, so even though it is more work, uh, I, I always remind people like this means that we don't have to spend nearly as much time doing individual uh, meetings together so that I can have all of this really valuable information. It's like giving me the answers to the test uh, mm -hmm. and I can, you know, create better hypotheses and better interventions because of it. Uh, 
I love that. I really, really do. And I, I think one of the things that I'd like to talk about is your role as a therapist and knowing that the couple is neurodiverse, whether um, one of the partners comes in and says, I know that I'm on the spectrum or um, the non-autistic partner says, I suspect it. And then it's something that is discussed and both partners agree. I think one of the challenging things that often happens in neurodiverse relationships when you don't know, but also when you do know that you're a neurodiverse couple is um, finding a way to reframe your different perspectives and translating, uh, having somebody that can translate and help you understand each other's perspectives and reframe things. Because I know you know, that um, communication roundabout, roundabout where you're having the same argument, the same fight, the same discussion, and it never gets resolved because you're coming from such different perspectives. So can you talk a little bit about when a couple comes to work with you, how you become the translator and how you help them reframe their different perspectives? The, there's one step that I usually have to take even prior to being able to translate the different perspectives. And that one step is ensuring that one, you know, neurodiverse uh, person isn't, you know, seeing themselves as better or less than than their other neurodiverse partner, even if they're neurotypical. Uh, the reason for that is because there, there are plenty of people who may be, you know, neurotypical who think that the way that they care for people or the way they have their needs in the relationship or the way they're able to show up in a relationship is better than a person with neurodiversity mm -hmm. and vice versa. There are plenty of times I sit with people who are neurodiverse who say, you know, I'm more logical. I'm more rational. I, I you know, can look at this data and see what the data says better than my partner does who, you know, worries about all the emotions of it. I can solve problems better. So uh, the first thing I have to check in on is one, the if there's any contempt, that top-down process of what I'm doing is better or how mm -hmm. my brain is organized is better than this person. Um, if we don't catch that, the difference between we're different versus we're different, um, that hint of contempt that comes in there, it'll be really hard to hear as well that there's a translation difference um, because people will be so... Uh, married to their brain type, to their neurobiology, that they will have a hard time seeing that they lean, right? That they have a lean because of the way their brains are set up and may not be quite as open to the interpretation process. So I'm listening for how people frame the neurodiversity. Is this a better than situation or is this a, hey, we both bring something to the table uh, and we can both allow these uh, strengths to grow in our relationship and use them for us versus against us. Um, so that's the appreciation for the, uh, the differences. I love that. I love that. And you mentioned like checking in to find out if there's contempt going on either side with either partner. And I know from the Gottman method and the four horsemen that contempt is a very um, high predictor of divorce or a very unhappy relationship. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the things that you hear during the conversations with couples when you see that there's contempt or you hear that there's contempt? Can you give us an example of maybe one or two? 
non-verbally uh, eye rolls and typically mm -hmm. in the adult ages we're not doing the full-blown teenage eye rolls uh, but that very quick flip of the eyes upward uh, mm -hmm. the shoulder shrug uh, the sort of uh, non-verbal verbal cues of yeah right um, those are all communicating contempt potentially right it's like when I hear this person talk to me you can see my body is repelling what they're saying. Um, and contempt does not always mean intention. Like the, there are plenty of times that people roll their eyes and they're not in meaning to, uh, you know, transmit contempt to the other person. Unfortunately though, uh, it's really hard for that to not land as contempt uh, because there is this sort of way that we're seeing the person's body react that says like, stop talking. I don't want to listen to you. You're wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the nonverbal side. And then on the, the verbal side, uh, we'll hear things like, you know, you're too rational and you're too emotional. Uh, you let your emotions get into the, get in the way of problem solving. Or uh, there's a question that I always find interesting on the, the Gottman assessment that says, I can only listen, I can listen up, I can listen, excuse me, to my partner, but only up to a point. Mm. that's like whoa <laughs> what's happening and, there what's and, this point <laughs> yeah what is the point is it I can only listen to you for five seconds I can only listen to you when I've had a few drinks I can only <laughs> listen to you whatever yeah, that, yeah that's that's considered contempt is what I'm hearing you saying I, I I worry that that's an indicator for contempt because what it's saying is I can listen to you but there's a point at which I start shutting down Mm -hmm. uh, because I don't find value in what you're saying anymore. Yeah. Right? That's, oh. that's the other side of that. Like I can listen to you up to a point until you're wrong or until, you know, your ideas don't make sense or until you're being irrational or until you're being too logical. There's, there's a fill in in that. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm, I'm listening for what's the fill in in that blank uh, because that there's a chance that the person seeing themselves as better than in some capacity Um because if you stop listening for one of those reasons, it's because you don't look at your partner and say like, ah, we're different and we still have value in our opinions here. And we can both show that we value the other person's opinion. Catherine, I think that is fantastic. And that's really going to be helpful to the therapists and coaches that are listening that maybe don't have a lot of experience working with neurodiverse couples. Because I'll tell you, one of the therapists my ex and I went to he said to the therapist, um, Mona, being with Mona is like being in a minefield constantly. I never know what is going to set her off. And oh my gosh, you can imagine I started crying. I looked at him like, are you kidding me? <laughs> but now I understand, you know, he did not handle my emotions well. And boy, could I get emotional. Of course, I've worked on that a lot. But, you know, that is, to me, that's contempt, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it hurts. And so I don't know if you want to um, address this at all, but I know a lot of times couples will take those things personal. Mm -hmm. And so how, I know for every one of the four horsemen, there's um, another side that's more positive. So like the antidote, I think it's called. So what would be like the antidote for contempt? There are two. So we have the the short term, like in the moment that contempt is coming out. So in the, in the moment that I notice I'm rolling my eyes when my partner says something to me, right? I have to catch and ask myself like, whoa, what is it that I'm feeling? 
Mm -hmm. And what is it that would help me right now? Uh, and it's not necessarily so that I hijack the conversation and focus it on me. It's because I need something to stay engaged to what this very important person is trying to tell me. And the more I react to the contempt that blocks me from actually effectively working on that with my partner. And if he notices it, uh, it may shut him down in wanting to bring these concerns to me. Right. Yeah. This, is, this is a dance that we get into. It's not one sided. Um, I mean, that's the part of that is catching that and being able to say, like, I'm having a hard time hearing you. Give me a couple of seconds uh, and then moving back into the conversation sometimes. Right. Um, yeah. The long term antidote to contempt is uh, creating a culture of appreciation and not just, hey, thanks for taking out the trash. Um, Gottman finds that couples who stay together, what he calls the masters of relationships, when they express appreciation, they're identifying a quality or a trait in their partner. They're uh, thinking about a moment, especially more recently, that they saw that trait or quality in their partner. And so then they're sharing that with the partner. So yeah. not only do they get to relive that moment in their brain, they also get to relive that moment with their partner. So, you know, it meant so much to me that you grabbed the trash this morning um, because I just, I think about how committed you are to keeping the house tidy. And I know that's not maybe your lean, but I really appreciate a tidy house. So it means a lot that you're committed to it, uh, even if you wouldn't have done it, you know, as much as I do it. So that's a way of like really taking that appreciation and putting it on steroids, if you will, for a relationship. I love that. I, you know, I, I always say that I, there's so many things that I talk about on the podcast that I love, but I think that that is really important. And I think the longer you go in a neurodiverse relationship, not knowing you're neurodiverse, I think the higher the contempt and one of the other four horsemen criticism can get because you don't understand your partner's perspective and you're looking at everything through your own lens, whether that's the more logical and rational lens or the more emotional um, lens. And so the appreciation piece is really critical. And I know that sometimes in the beginning, I've heard this from a lot of non-autistic neurotypical partners, when I make that suggestion that the, they both um, appreciate each other every day, that sometimes it feels almost robotic, you know, mm -hmm. that the autistic person is saying things and maybe it's a script. But you know what? I feel like we have to give each other grace and we have to give each other space to learn new skills. Because if you've been screaming at each other or putting each other down or feeling better than your partner for many, many years, it's going to take a while to learn how to appreciate each other literally every day or almost every day, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think it'd be really helpful if we talk about um, empathy a little bit and specifically the different kinds of empathy, because I know um, there's that major challenge with contempt and appreciation, but I also hear over and over again, how folks are not understanding that there are different types of empathy and that we can all be empathetic, but it's going to look different in a neurodiverse relationship. Mm -hmm. So do you mind sharing a little bit about what you found with neurodiverse couples related to empathy? Empathy is done differently. And I think that, um, you know, I, I make this joke that 
our cultural messages, our social messages, our media messages about what a romantic relationship is, um, they're written by neurotypicals, um, right? Yeah. They're, they're written by people who have those needs and those dreams and those desires, right? The people who maybe watch a Disney movie and think, when's my prince showing up? Mm -hmm. um, and, but the people who really create these ginormous systems, you know, like Amazon and, you know, create, write up computer codes and all that, they tend to be neuro, uh, you know, diverse. They tend to be different. And so when our cultural messages about what is a romantic relationship and what isn't is written by those who are uh, neurotypical, then we're going to have a difference in what is or isn't a romantic relationship in the microcosm of these couples relationships where there, there are neurodiverse partners, right? Because the, the neurodiverse person is not going to look at the, the neurotypical and say, I have those exact needs. You're right. I do need to know I am loved and that I'm the only person in your world and that you tell me that five times a day and it fills my bucket. Mm -hmm. right? um, that, that may not happen just, and it goes around this idea of appreciation. I have sat with a lot of neurodiverse folks who do not actually want somebody appreciating them. It, it doesn't do anything for them. And it actually feels belittling to them. Uh, and their neurotypical partner looks at them and says, but I need it. Right. Right. Like, right. I hear this all the time, <laughs> Catherine. So let, let's talk about how do, how do you make sure that you understand, you know, whether you call it your partner's love language or their emotional needs or whatever, how do you get to the point where you're able to, whether you as the therapist are able to translate or you're able to watch them, you know, translate for each other to get to the point where they understand that one of them has a lot of emotional needs and wants and the other not so much. And they look at it through very different lenses. Right. And that's part of the translation process. And that's why it's so important to ensure that it's, it's a difference and not a difference. Right. Yeah. So like, oh, this is just something that's different between us versus this makes one of us better or less than the other. Um, so working through when your when your wife says, and I'll, I'll use that more, you know, gender typical language, because a lot of wives are the neurotypicals, um, though I've had plenty of wives who are the neurodiverse, uh, where uh, they do want the appreciations, they need it. And the neurodiverse person may say, I'm really struggling with that. So we have to use what we call cognitive empathy. Uh, and what that really is, is the ability to understand how a person feels and what they might be thinking, right? And that's different than emotional empathy, which is the ability to share the feelings of another person. Mm -hmm. So that's more of an example of like, when you talk about how sad you are, I can feel the sadness. Right. That seems to be held in higher value. I think in some, in some instances or in some relationship types where unless you're feeling what I'm feeling, I don't think you're getting it. Um, and I think that it can also be a really healthy emotional boundary for a person to say like, oh, so when I don't express appreciation for you, what you're doing, uh, it's, it's harder for you to keep doing those things. And it, to you, it looks like I don't see all the things that you do. And so you feel invisible. Mm-hmm. Right? Like you don't have to have the same emotion, but if you can understand what that might be like, that seems really helpful too. Um, Absolutely. And I think the way you just said that, I love that because 
like for example um i loved being told nice things and i have in every relationship that i've been in you know it makes me feel good makes me smile you know it's a, a dopamine or oxytocin hit and i'm really into that mm-hmm. and i sh- i'm sure there's a lot of other listeners um that are too but my ex husband was very much into um more acts of service Mm -hmm. and so and I've said this on the podcast before he would get me cards or he would get me you know my favorite candy or my favorite cake but that's not what I wanted Mm -hmm. I wanted him to say things um, the way I was saying them and it Mm -hmm. caused a lot of conflict and so when we understand that there are different types of empathy and there are different ways of communicating appreciation, and when we stop judging our partners and trying to see them through the lens of what we want rather than what they can give, which, you know, I'm raising both hands. I was very, very guilty of that um, in my marriage. But when we can change that perspective and we have a therapist or a coach that can help us do that on both sides, Mm -hmm. I think we become more respectful of each other and can appreciate the differences rather than thinking one of us is better than the other. What do you think? It's an and situation. Yeah. Like I'm not asking people to stop doing the things that show you you care. And I don't want you to only do the things that your partner is looking for. Like when we add more to the bucket, then there's more in the bucket for everyone. Right. Uh, And it's the framework of that. So take that instance where uh, a person does express appreciation to their partner as the partner has requested, but it sounds too monotone. It sounds too rote. Uh, And I I talk with people, how are you, how are you interpreting that? How do you frame that? And the framework is uh, you don't have emotion in your voice or, you know, I've had to ask you to do it. So it doesn't mean anything or you don't look like you care when you say that right? Those are all frameworks. That's all the interpretive lens that that partner is using to evaluate the request that their partner is fulfilling. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Of course. Right. That's how your brain is framing this situation. How about this frame? Wow. My partner loves me so much and they're so willing to do something outside of their comfort zone that they will do everything they can to think of the words that they know I really want to hear, even though it's uncomfortable or they're worried that I might get upset about how it's done. They're still trying the thing that I asked them to do. That's amazing that they care about me so much. Yes. Oh, what a great translation or interpretation. I love the term you used interpretive lens. I think that that's really something then that both partners can think about because, you know, I'm a big hugger. And one of the guys that I dated, um, it became clear after some time that, that he was definitely neurodivergent and he didn't like hugging. And at first, you know, I took it personal. And when I understood that our brains were wired very differently, I realized that what he was doing were, again, acts of service to show me that he cared and I could get like a two second hug but that was about it. So I would tell him after he started giving me those two second hugs, and usually I couldn't get more than one, maybe two a day. Mm -hmm. I said, I really love it when you give me a hug or you let me hug you, even if it's only for a few seconds. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So then he was open to doing it. 
you know, Mm -hmm. because he knew how much it meant to me. And I think if I would have had the lens that I had in my marriage, um, if I would have looked through that interpretive lens, I would have gotten very angry and I would have gotten very defensive and I would have gotten very hurt and taking, taken it personally. And that wouldn't have been good for the relationship at all. So I love the idea of the interpretive lens. So let's talk a little bit about, um, the way in which maybe one partner might get suspicious of another partner's intentions when they are being appreciative or, you know, giving their partner compliments. Mm -hmm. You know, oftentimes in my marriage, I would say wonderful things about my partner because he's an amazing human being and I still feel that way. And he had so many gifts and he still does have so many gifts and talents that I valued and appreciated so much. But oftentimes when I would compliment him, he would think I was being condescending. And this was before I knew we were a neurodiverse couple. And I couldn't understand that because I craved those kind of comments from him, which he, he didn't often give because it wasn't something that he valued. So can you talk a little bit about how that interpretation might not be totally on the mark? Yeah. And I think with, you know, that suspicious lean, that difficulty in hearing people and, and assigning a positive and motivation to, you know, their compliments or what they're doing for you versus that more suspicious lens. Uh, One, like just as a therapist, it's really important for me to ensure I understand the lens over that person's brain, because I that could come from trauma, right? That could come from developmental trauma or, you know, um, DSM-5 trauma of having witnessed or experienced a life or death situation where uh, your worldview of um, yourself, other people and the world alone is can become very negative. Um, that can happen from relationship, you know, issues in the past. If you've been cheated on, you may have a hard time if your um, partner is looking at their phone too much. Mm -hmm. Um, There there are other reasons a person may be more suspicious. So ensuring that the, the lens, the framework of that suspicion is as accurate as it can be, especially because as a couples diagnose, um, couples therapist, I don't diagnose. I say, Hey, this is on the radar. Um, should we get this checked out a bit more? Um, but I've noticed that with my neurodiverse folks, they do seem to have uh, a more suspicious lens on other people's motivations. Uh, and whether that is from growing up and not feeling like they fit in or feeling like they were taken advantage of, especially if your social skills aren't quite as sharp, mm-hmm. you know, you may find yourself in relationships that you think are relationships you're supposed to be in and, and find out later that you were being taken advantage of, that people weren't trustworthy. There are also family culture values where people will, you know, uh, warn their family members of outsiders and other people's uh, intentions. And if you're neurodiverse, you take that as, you know, etched in steel that you grew up with, uh, then you are really mindful of other people's intentions and may even paint them in a more negative way. We also know that neurodiversity can have a strong genetic component. So if a uh, parent is already on the spectrum and already more suspicious of other people, and they filter that down into a child with autism, uh, they will etch that in steel for their their child's brain as well, depending upon how they engage the child with that. So I've noticed a, a more suspicious lean, and that can make it harder to build trust in that more emotional component of a relationship because a person's guard is always up. And that will systemically affect, you know, the partner in the relationship. 
because they'll feel that guard and feel like, wow, like you don't see me in this good, positive light. You see me in this really negative, like malicious way. Yeah, I think that that is, uh, like I said, it's a major challenge I dealt with in my marriage and I hear it from a lot of other folks too. So is there, for lack of a better word, an antidote? Is there something that you do with your clients that you're working with to help them kind of get through that? Because I think if you, you don't fully appreciate your partner's appreciation of you or their attempt at, at attempt at empathizing or whatever good vibes they're trying to share with you. And you're always coming from a place of, you know, not trusting them because of trauma from the past, or like you said, family of origin issues, maybe a parent who was on the, on the spectrum too. How do you, how do you bridge that gap? So for the first piece is even catching the filter, right? And, and thankfully because of the, um, big, big book that we do at CTI. And because of some of the questions on other assessments, I can sometimes see that, wow, this person is having a hard time giving their partner the benefit of the doubt that they're doing things out of goodwill, that they're doing things out of the sake of improving the relationship and not out of selfish intentions. So mm-hmm. sometimes I can already see that happening. Um, I ask a lot of like, how does your brain you know, interpret what your partner is doing? What is your brain telling you that this person is doing and why? Right. And just, just tell me what your brain is telling you. And and that's very different than saying, why do you think your partner is doing that? Or, you know, what is your partner doing that for? It's asking them to like basically externalize that they're having a reaction to their filter, not per se to what the person is doing. Right. So one, I try to start teaching that that language around catch your filter and speak from the filter speak from your perspective not per se what you think the person is doing or isn't doing and why because once you start assigning that to your partner of course you're going to get defensiveness of course you're going to get stonewalling right you're going to get the other horsemen once right. you start you know capital t truthing you know and assigning those motivations and intentions to your partner um, and it is like couples therapy is tough because you will hear your partner think poorly of you, mm-hmm. right? You will hear your partner say like, I, at that moment, I thought that you really just wanted to ruin the day, right? Like, I, and it's, it's hard to hear that you were seen that way, which is why we need that, that boundary around. This is my perspective. This is how I read you. This is what my brain tells me. Because that allows us a little bit of space to start challenging that a bit. Um, the other thing I look at is what is what's the models that they're working on? So are there models from growing up or from other relationships that when they see certain data points, they start applying that model? Um, was there something in this relationship? Sometimes for folks, they have a bad guy moment. Um, so sometimes uh, in the relationship, there will be an incident. And it won't even be something that the neurotypical person saw. It won't always be something that they were tracking in the same way, but there will be this moment uh, for a neurodiverse person where they, they are looking at their partner and saying like, wow, like you really don't care about me or like you're really selfish and you only think about yourself or you're a bad guy type moment. And unfortunately that shuts their brain down and moving beyond that point, um, they put their wall up, they put their guard up and have a hard time trusting that their partner could have better motivations. It's that very sort of black and white thinking 
Um, and when you can imagine with difficulty with perspective taking, you're not exactly asking yourself what that might have looked like for the other person either. Uh, and honestly, in our fight or flight mode, we're not asking what that looked like for the right. other person. <laughs> right. So it happens on both sides of the street. Uh, but so we have to look at one, what's your frame? And then two, what does your data tell you from the past? How are you interpreting this other data? Were there any significant moments in your relationship with this person now where they've become the bad guy? Uh, and that will help us know how to move forward. Do we need to do repair conversations, right? Um, Gottman has the aftermath of a regrettable incident. So right. we can walk through what happened and see if an effective apology can help work through some of that. Um, we can also work through some perspective taking and say like, you know, work through uh, with A and E, it's the duck bunny exercise. What might that have looked like for your partner? Um, and, and the cognitive empathy. Uh, so kind of understanding those three points will help me see what are the different interventions we need moving forward from here. Because unfortunately, if that inability to absorb or even entertain that your partner is doing something because they're a good person, right? And they care about you and they care about the relationship, and that suspicious part of your brain keeps miscoding what they're doing, um, then that relationship will continue to struggle and have an even harder time uh, with some of the other interventions. Yeah. I, I so hear this over and over again, and it, it can be so uh, depressing and sad and anxiety producing for both partners. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, thank you so much for that great explanation and so much valuable information. I think one of the things that I hear a lot is I can never do anything right. Um, and it goes with both partners, you know, whether it's the non-autistic neurotypical partner who says, you know, my partner's always putting me down. I never, um, I'm perfect enough. I'm not logical enough. I'm not rational enough. You know, I don't have uh, the same planning skills, you know, or whatever. And then on the other side, the neurotypical um, saying, or the the autistic person saying, you know, um, I try, I, I listen to what my partner asks me to do. I do it, but it's not good enough. And oftentimes it's because you know, the emotion attached to it isn't what the non-autistic neurotypical partner is looking for, or the tone of their voice is different. So what would you suggest or what, how do you help couples who are going through that where literally they say, I feel like nothing I do is ever enough? The first piece is really understanding what your own, you know, triggers in Gottman language, EFT, it's raw spots, knowing what your own maps look like when it comes to triggers or raw spots, right? Mm -hmm. We will always have our own internal vulnerabilities, our own experiences and ways of being that have, you know, created sensitivities. So things that may really, you know, hijack a person's fight or flight for, for that person may not do it for another person. So really knowing your own raw spots, knowing your own vulnerabilities uh, is one of the first things I, I do with my, my uh, individuals and my partners is because if you don't know what elicits that fight or flight mode reaction for you, then how can you start managing that? Because mm -hmm. as tough as it is to hear, raw spot management and trigger management is really for the person who's activated. It's not the responsibility of the people around them. 
Um, so really knowing what is it about me that can have these really intense reactions. And for some folks, it is that I whatever I do isn't good enough. I see that a ton in families, right? Mm -hmm. The messages they got in their families, whether or not it was intentional, um, had, can shape that vulnerability already. Uh, part of this I talk to people around is approximation. We, we can have a hard time rewarding approximation, uh, meaning what I'm looking for. Uh, you know, if I've set the goal to be this, this is what I'm looking for. I don't look for the things that lead up to that. I look for that. And I use the example with folks when you tie, a, when you teach a child how to tie their shoe. If it wasn't for working with children with autism, I would have never realized how hard most of these basic skills were actually to learn. Um, uh, because when you're trying to teach a child how to tie their shoe, there is fine motor, there is hand-eye coordination, there is knowing all the steps of how to loop the, the shoelaces. Um, and you know, with a little kid, if you just give them the shoe and tell them to tie it, and you don't reward, reinforce, do anything about all their attempts, right? Picking up yeah. the shoelaces, trying to make the little bunny ears. If you don't do any of that, they're going to get pretty frustrated. And most of the time, they'll, they'll stop trying. Yeah. Because they don't know that they're on the path. Right. And we don't do that with our partners. We don't say, look, I need you to do this. And then let them know when they're actually on the path toward that thing. Um, and so if we're only saying, well, you didn't do this right? And what I often hear is, but I did do this. And what yes. I find is that, you know, when we've said we want something from our partner, sometimes that thing we're asking for can be outside of their comfort zone, outside of their skill set. So if we're not looking for the little things that they're doing, showing us that they're on that path for that bigger thing, uh, we can become really demotivating in how we approach them with that. So if we say, I want you to spend more time with me, and the other person says, but I, I spent two nights watching your Netflix show, the other person says, no, I wanted to talk to you. Right. Right? Right. That's that sense of no matter what I do, it's not good enough. So Gottman talks about making sure that your request is a specific positive, as in the presence of, not the absence of an action. Uh, because if we don't say, look, I really would love to have, I don't know, maybe a 10-minute conversation with you about you know this book that I read, I thought it was really funny and goofy and I would love to just chat with you about that. That would mean a lot. Now I, I've let them know what I'm looking for and uh, that interpretation process if I wanna spend time with you can be really inundating. Like, does that mean like I have to spend three hours with you? Cause I'm really busy, right? right? Like, I have a lot of work to do right. three hours. Like that's how my brain interprets what you want. Um, right. Versus when you're specific and you're like, I'm asking for 10 minutes. Do you have that? Like I can figure out how to make 10 minutes work. Right. I love, I love that Catherine. And I love again, the term that you used approximation uh, because I, I hear folks say, you know, sometimes I just feel like I'm parenting my partner and that, you know, usually comes from the neurotypical non-autistic partner. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has to do with what you're talking about or what you talked about at the beginning of the podcast. And that was about feeling that, you know, we're superior or better than our partner. No, our part, we, we have very different operating systems. We're wired very differently. So if we are interpreting or um, processing our partner's actions or responses through our funnel, 
we may not give them credit for maybe the baby steps or the approximation of what our expectation is. So I really, really like that because I think in any relationship, we have expectations of our partners. And if they don't 100% meet those expectations, and I'm raising both hands here, I had a lot of expectations. You know, you get disappointed, you get angry, it causes conflict that sometimes never gets repaired. But if you look at the positive intent and the approximation of your partner's actions and response and give them grace, I think that you can hopefully um, appreciate what they're doing and the time they're putting into giving you what you're asking for. I also think the other thing that you said that's really critical and is part of Gottman is to speak in the affirmative and the positive, asking them for what you want. And again, raising my hands, I was guilty in asking for what or or specifically stating what I didn't want. I don't do that anymore. You know, so being very, very clear, concrete, concise, and maybe not very emotional, asking for what we need with that timeline. Like, can you spend 10 minutes with me talking about, you know, my day every day or whatever? Uh, can we go for a 15 minute walk? Then I think our partners can wrap their heads around that, understand exactly what's being asked of them. And more times than not, we'll be able to get what we're asking for. Yeah. And there's this idea of like, sometimes we have to help people understand why that's important. And we have to use the language helps them understand that. So if I just say, well, it means something to me because then I know you love me. Uh, for a person who's neurodiverse, that may not be their language. Well, of right. course I love you. I married you and I'm still married to you, right? Like that, right. that is the argument for, well, how do you not know that I love you? I'm still here, right? right? Um, why do I have to tell you I love you every day? I haven't yet. Like there's, right. um, you know, a difference in how we like communicate and set that, set that with each other. So I will help people understand that a bit differently in, in using different, you know, helpful analogies such as, okay, so your your spouse wants you to express appreciation. And I totally get that that to you sounds empty. You don't want to sound like you're lying. You don't want to, you know, just make stuff up. I get that you want to be as authentic and genuine as possible. And also it really helps your wife to hear that. It means something to her. So what if I phrased it like this? Like, okay, so you, you have to put money into a bank account uh, because if you didn't, then you wouldn't have anything to withdraw from. So imagine that every time you put that appreciation into your wife's bank account, it may help her to make withdrawals in the future because her account won't be in the red. Mm, right. So she has to give you the benefit of the doubt for something that you have to say no to something right in the future. Uh, she'll already have the other times you said yes to things. Right. That's the emotional bank account. And I love the emotional bank account because we don't think about that. And I know Gottman talks about for every negative, there needs to be five positives. And sometimes I think there needs to be more than five positives, uh, you know, when it's a, a repeat story over and over again, or you didn't know that you were a neurodiverse couple, and then you find out you're a neurodiverse couple, and you've got 10, 15, 20, maybe even 30 years behind you where there was misunderstanding, you know, and in my marriage, there was so much unintentional. And I say this over and over again, it was unintentional, hurt 
pain and trauma on both of our sides. Mm -hmm. And without the right therapist to help you get through that, I don't know how couples can recover and how they can repair. So I'm so glad, Catherine, that you are doing the work you're doing with neurodiverse couples. And there's so much wonderful information that you've shared today that I know is going to be very, very helpful to a lot of our listeners. So I'm wondering if there's one last thing that you want to share, maybe a recurring issue that you see coming up with the neurodiverse couples that you've worked with, maybe something we haven't talked about that you address maybe more often than you'd like to, and maybe how you address that. Yeah, I'm taking a second just to be really intentional with that. Uh, I think that, honestly, the the piece that really comes up with neurodiversity is, one, even being able to notice that that may be a part of the picture, especially for your really, really low-level ones, maybe even people with, like, the wiring of it, but not necessarily the meets the full full criteria, uh, is that we will... Uh, frame that with what we know. So if it's a partner, they may say, well, you don't care about me, right? So one, I just think it's catching it. And that's really why I got the AANE training was because even though I worked with children with autism, I've worked with their families, uh, I knew that there were cases, right? Couples I sat with that with my EFT training, they said, oh, this is just a withdrawer. And it's like, "Mm, they're like a withdrawer, but to like the complete opposite side of the spectrum. As far down that withdrawal side of the spectrum as you can get, uh, it was so hard to help these folks re-engage. And I mean, that could easily have been my skill set as well. Like that, there is definitely some, you know, user error potential in Mm -hmm. that. I just knew that there were a couple of folks though that just sort of like stood out to me. Uh, So I got the A and E training because what I was concerned about was. I knew it with children. I knew it when they were like, you know, level threes, but I couldn't get the level one diagnoses. I was having a hard time knowing what that would look like. Um, I could list the symptoms, but how does it actually present when a person is still really highly functional, what used to be called Asperger's, but we know that there's just something a bit different about their wiring. So A&E mm-hmm. really helped me flesh that out. And they helped give me skills that I can overlay with any of my other trainings. It doesn't have to be a specific training in itself. It overlays with everything else to, so that I am also pulling those people in. I'm catching it better. I'm translating. I'm interpreting. Uh, I'm helping them understand each other a bit better. And I have skills that they can both use for those challenging moments um, that other you know, models may not include quite as extensively. Uh, So I really appreciate even being able to offer that up as a hypothesis to what might be affecting a couple's relationship uh, and then having tools that specifically help with that particular set of of dynamics. I think that's great. And you can, it's clear that you can help couples repair and get to the other side, whether they decide to stay in their relationship or not. I think one of the most challenging things is when you're so angry at your partner um, and there's so much resentment that's built up over time and a therapist doesn't understand neurodiversity and they're asking you to do things together that can literally be painful to one or the other part 
uh, partner or re-traumatizing to one or the other partner. And so I think that neurodiverse couples lens is so important. So thank you so much for sharing that. I would love for you, Catherine, to share now how folks can get in touch with you. And I always ask if you also do coaching, meaning can you see folks outside of the states that you're licensed in? So how would people get in touch with you and who can you work with? So I uh, am able in terms of the therapy process to work with folks in Hawaii, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. Um, I'm also a certified discernment counselor. And the reason I put that out there is because 30% of the couples who come in for couples therapy are actually what we call mixed agenda, meaning one partner or both partners may be leaning out or uncertain of the future of the relationship. And if we try to do couples therapy with those folks, we are most likely going to get couples therapy failure mm. because couples therapy implies that the direction of the relationship is to move forward together. Um, so discernment counseling is especially really important for folks when one or both partners is unsure of the future of the relationship. So we can even make a clear intentional direction for the relationship together and then move into couples therapy if that's the path that's chosen. Uh, and so I can provide that as well for those three states. I also do couples coaching and individual coaching, um, and that is not restricted by state. I'm also really uh, tight with my boundaries, if you will, around if that's appropriate or not. I always want to make sure that people are receiving the care that is appropriate for their needs. Um, so I'm, I'm cautious on ensuring that coaching is appropriate um, and that it isn't really just therapy trying to be done across state lines. Right. So my little caveats around that. Yes. Uh, and, yes. Uh, you know, for couples work, people are welcome to go to the Couples Therapy Inc. website. Um, I have a, you know, my page on there with them. They're a really wonderful company that provides just top-notch couples therapy services. And then I have my own private practice called uh, Individual and Couples Therapy in New Hampshire. Wonderful. And do you have a website for that? Is there a website address or how would people reach out to you? Yeah. So folks can reach out to me on that right now by phone number. Um, and I'm happy to give that work phone number um, if you would like. Sure. Uh, but sure. the, the website on that is pending. Okay. Um, so that's why I wanted to, to just put that out there. Um, so one second, the area code right now is 978 six, seven, four, eight, five, three, nine. And that is what I do most of my individual work out of. Wonderful. And you work both with autistic individuals and the non-autistic or neurotypical individuals. Correct. Awesome. Catherine, this has been a phenomenal episode. I, it's so wonderful. You know, I'm, I'm up to almost a hundred episodes and it's amazing that every single episode brings new information to the listeners and new perspectives. And I can't thank you enough for doing that and bringing your own expertise to the podcast that I know is going to be helpful to a lot of folks. Well, again, thank you so much, Mona, for the opportunity, as well as just creating, you know, a community where people can actually find this information, hear from, you know, all the people who have experience and, and expertise in this, because that can be a really hard thing to find for neurodiverse folks. So.